Before we really get into our lesson, I want to tell you a story that I recently read about a gentleman named Jason. And Jason was actually arrested uh, for being a Christian. And let me kind of tell you about his life and where he was from before he became a Christian. You see, Jason lived in a city where, and this is hard for us to even imagine, but he lived in a city where there were no Christians. It wasn't that Christianity was illegal or anything like that. It was simply that nobody there knew about Jesus. Nobody talked about Jesus. Nobody was following Jesus at all. There were no church buildings. There were no uh, Bibles. There were no Christians. Until one day, this handful of missionaries showed up and began to teach people about Jesus, and people began to respond and be baptized, become Christians and followers of Jesus, including this young man named Jason. And in fact, Jason apparently invited the missionaries to stay in his home. So they were at his house. Maybe the church met there and, and people, but here's the thing. Neighbors figured out that this is where the Christians the Christians met, and this is kind of their, their headquarters in town. And, and some of the influential people in town that weren't believers in Jesus not only didn't believe, but they were really upset that there were so many people becoming Christians or that there were people at all becoming Christians. And, and so they, they began to stir people up, and there was actually a riot. So they were rioting in the streets, and they, they figured out the missionaries are probably at Jason's house. And so they all start making their way down to Jason's place, and they break in the door. They rush inside. They look for the missionaries. The missionaries aren't there, but Jason is there. They grab him and whatever Christians they can find, and they took them to the city authorities. The city authorities charged them with being seditious and spreading anti-government propaganda. Thankfully, Jason was released on bail, But the missionaries themselves knew that they were in danger. And the handful of Christians that were there in town, they knew that these missionaries were going to be in danger. In fact, they'd kill them if they got the chance. And so they had to sneak them out at night. Now, you may not remember Jason's name, but chances are you've heard of the city that Jason was from. And it's Thessalonica. So two of our letters in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, are written to this group of Christians that were left behind when these missionaries had to leave town. Now, I just want you to imagine what that would be like. To just start believing in Jesus and just start accepting this is true and really just start beginning as a church family and then all of a sudden kind of left on your own to fend for yourself in an environment like that where your family and your friends and your co-workers and people you interacted with and sold things to and they sold things to you. Now they, they not just don't understand you, but they hate you. They think that you're somehow anti-Caesar because you believe in this new king, Jesus. And so they're out to get you. That's the sort of an environment that the church in Thessalonica lived in. So when you read First and Second Thessalonians, read it in the context of Acts chapter 17 because that's the, that's the kind of life that these Christians were living. Now, with that in mind, look over at Second Thessalonians. We're going to read the first chapter of Second Thessalonians and it says this. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, the three missionaries who were there in Thessalonica and were run out of town. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And and that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, imagine if somebody comes to you and they've got this brand new teaching and they say, hey, listen, here's the thing. Caesar really isn't 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's Jesus. This crucified Messiah, this crucified Jew, he, he didn't stay dead. He conquered death, and he is delivering everyone who follows him. He's delivering us from the power of sin and death and delivering us into his kingdom. And you say, wow, that sounds awesome. I think I want to be a part of that. And so you become a part of that, and then the persecution starts. It'd be really easy to say, never mind, I changed my mind, I'm out, right? But they didn't do that. They were faithful to Jesus. And Paul is incredibly thankful that they are following Jesus and that their faith is growing abundantly and the love of everyone you have for one another is increasing. And then he says in verse 4, now pay attention to this, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, again, they're going through persecution and affliction. Now, think about your response to persecution or affliction, whether that's someone else that's going through persecution and affliction for being a follower of Jesus, or whether that's you thinking about maybe someday the possibility of maybe might happen to you in your lifetime, in your culture. How would you respond How would you react? Now, look at what Paul's reaction is concerning their persecution and affliction. What does he say that he does? Look at the word. starts with the B. Boast, right? I'm boasting about you because you're faithful. You're enduring. You're still loving Jesus and you're holding on and you're strong. And I look at other Christians around the community and I talk to other Christians and churches and I say, look at Thessalonica. Look at those Christians. Look at how faithful they are. Look at how they're still following Jesus and doing what they need to do, even though their neighbors and their family and their former friends and their co-workers, they hate them. They spit on them. They take them to court if they can. They would kill them if they were were able. And they're following Jesus. Jesus with all their heart, and I boast about you, I brag on you, I tell everybody I see about you because of your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions. Now, look at verse 5. He says, here's where it gets hard for us to understand. This is hard. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. See, the the first century church had a unique perspective on persecution, a unique perspective on suffering. And we struggle to understand it. Do you remember what the church in Jerusalem did when they were beaten for being Christians? They didn't say, God, why we, we didn't do anything to deserve this. This isn't fair. Why are you allowing this to happen? They didn't say that. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for his name. Now, in order for us to understand, I think in order for us to understand their unique perspective on persecution and suffering, we have to understand their unique perspective on the church. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been in a group that you thought, I don't deserve to be here? I'm not worthy to be, I've I've had that feeling a lot, but have you ever been in a group where you thought, I'm not rich enough to be here, or smart enough to be here, or talented enough to be here. I don't fit in here. I don't look like I fit in here. I don't feel like I fit in here. I'm not worthy to be here. I don't deserve to be here. 
See, a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God would leave us feeling a little bit like that, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it for just a second. I mean, when we say that we are a part of God's kingdom, what we're saying is Abraham, you remember Abraham? You remember people like David and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and all of these people of God, we're saying we stand with them. We're part of their family. We're saying Paul and Peter and Jesus were a part of the same group of people they are a part of. We're part of God's people. And we're saying we are a part of what God is doing in the world. We represent the people of God everywhere we go. We are, as Peter puts it, a royal priesthood. Now, if you can say all of that and feel like you deserve to say that or feel like you're worthy of saying that, we don't really understand what we're talking about, do we? I mean, think about it. Who am I to say all of that? Who am I to say I'm, I'm in the same category and the same group as Isaiah or Abraham or Moses? Who am I to say that? Who are you to say that? Who are we to say we're a part of God's people going out into the world and doing good in his, in his name? Who am I to say I wear the name of Jesus? I mean, we, we say we're Christians so nonchalantly, don't we? Say, are you a Christian? Yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Duh, you know, of course I'm a Christian. We, we act like it's no big deal. It ought to surprise us still. Even if you've been a Christian for decades, it still ought to surprise you. Yeah, as hard as it is to believe. I know, I know. It's hard to believe, but yes, God lets me be a part of that group. Yes, in spite of what I've done, in spite of who I've been, in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of everything, I don't know how, but somehow, by His grace, He lets me be on His team. That's amazing. You see, they so felt that way. They so felt unbelievably honored to be a part of what God was doing in the world and a part of God's people, that to suffer with His people and to suffer for his people was, was sort of like a badge to say, yes, you really do belong. You really do belong. You bleed with us and sweat with us. You're, you're beaten with us. You get things confiscated and taken away and still you stand with us. Yes, you really do belong here. I mean, think about something as insignificant. I've made the mistake three times now. Nobody's gotten me. I said football was insignificant, and you know, I've, I've so far I've survived. But, but think about something as insignificant as football, and, and yet if if you're a football player and you've got scars from your football play, they're badges of honor, aren't they? You see, they prove I'm a part of the team, or I was a part of the team, and I did this for the team. Every stripe, every dollar they lost. Every insult they suffered, every time somebody spit upon them was proof you really are a part of what God is doing in the world. And they wore it with honor. But I wonder, do we think about ourselves that way? Do we think about what we're a part of that way? 
Do we think of being a Christian that way? Do we think about being a part of this community that way? Or do we think maybe sometimes, if we're honest, the church is lucky to have me? No. You're lucky. Not lucky, but blessed. Graciously blessed. To be a part of the people of God. Not just in this community, but across the world and throughout time. You stand with the people of God by his grace. Now, look at the next passage. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Paul said in the previous verse, in verse 5, that two things, two things were the results of the persecution they were going through. One, it was showing the righteous judgment of God, and two, it was making them worthy of the kingdom of God. And he says here in verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. See, we don't, I don't like to talk about the judgment of God and God punishing people and God's vengeance. And I kind of try to steer away from those things, but we shouldn't, should we? Because if we're being persecuted, if people are being persecuted, if people have been persecuted, then it's good news that Jesus is going to set everything right. That's good news that the murderers won't always continue to murder, that the extortioners won't always continue to extort, that those who manipulate and oppress will not always continue to do so, that the afflicted will be relieved of their affliction, and that justice will be served. That's good news. And he says in verse 7, And to grant relief to you, who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. You see, ironically, the Christians in Thessalonica were being persecuted because they believed that they were seditious, that they were rebels, that they were fighting against or standing against the authority of King Caesar. But in reality, the Christians are the ones who are standing with the rightful king. And it's all those who were persecuting Christians who were seditious and rebellious, and fighting against the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And every stripe, every persecution, every suffering, it sealed the fate of Jesus' people as his loyal subjects and sealed the fate of the persecutors as enemies of Jesus, as enemies of the true King of kings and Lord of Lords. It says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When, when Jesus comes on that day to be, listen to this church, to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, right now you feel like a loser. You feel like you're being walked on and oppressed because you are, but it will not always be this way that one day you will bask in the glory of King Jesus. You will marvel at his appearing. This is Reality. And this is what you're a part of. Do we feel that way? Do we think that way? Or is that just for weird Christians who are really passionate about stuff? 
You know, I read this text and I think, you know, it seems so black and white. It seems so defined side. You know, you have these Christians that are persecuted and hurting and waiting and meek and loving and are being persecuted by the people that hate Jesus and hate the kingdom and hate the church. And you got these two sides that are both equally passionate and committed to their way of thinking and their way of living. But then I look at me and I look at sometimes at Christians today and I think, are we... Are we that passionate? Or are we just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And yeah, I'm a Christian. And yeah, you know, I mean, I think he forgave my sins. And yeah, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Wait, that's not an option. Do we know what we're a part of? That we're a part of something epic. We're a part of something timeless. We're a part of something that was in the mind of God before time began. That we're, we're a part of the same family and the same kingdom and the same calling as all of the saints who've gone before us, and that this isn't just a future reality, but a present reality. This is what we're a part of, and do we embrace that? And do we look at ourselves and say, who am I to be a part of such a thing? And the answer is, you're exactly who Jesus wants to be a part of this thing. He wants you to embrace that, know that, and see that, and have your eyes open and your ears open and your heart open to say this is the calling to which we, not you individually, all of us, we've been called to. This is the people we're a part of. And this is the way that we think. Now, verse 11. I said all of that as an introduction. (laughs) Good news, huh? Okay. (laughs) Verse 11. Here's, Here's the thing. This has to affect our prayer life. And so as we read these next two verses, ask yourself, is this the way I pray? And if it's not, what adjustments need to be made? So Paul says this, to this end, with all this in mind, knowing what's going to happen, knowing what is happening, knowing what we're called to, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you And you may be glorified in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's break that down. Three things, at least three things that Paul prays for. Three things Paul prays for here. Number one, that God would make them worthy of his calling. Make them worthy of your calling. Do do we pray that? Do we pray that for ourselves? Do we pray that for each other? That doesn't mean that God will make us perfect or make us deserve to be saved. That's not what it means. Do we pray that God will make us worthy? Do whatever he needs to do to make us worthy of this epic life to which we've been called. Does that even enter our prayers? I mean, do you notice that when he says, listen, I know you're suffering and I know you're being persecuted and I know you're enduring all kinds of other things. We might think that Paul would say, so here's what I'm praying, that all of that stops immediately. That's not what he prayed. He didn't pray that the persecution would stop. Now, I'm not saying it would be wrong for him to pray that, but that's not his prayer. His prayer is that God use this. Use what they're enduring. Use what they're going through to make them worthy of the calling. Number two, he prayed that God would fulfill all the resolve that they had to do good works. 
I know you, I know you resolve to do good things and you have this faith to do good things. And I'm praying that God's power goes to work on all of those things and that they're all brought to fruition and that all those things become a reality. All your good works that you're planning on. Again, is that the sort of thing that we're praying? That all these good works, I mean, do you have inside of you all kinds of good things you want to accomplish for God and for his kingdom? What if somebody was praying that for you? What if somebody was praying for you that God in his power would bring to fulfillment all of your resolve to do good, that it all becomes reality? That let's say it all becomes reality tomorrow. What's changed? What's changed? What good works come into fulfillment, come to fruition, come into reality that you want to accomplish right now, you're just not able to. And if somebody was praying for that and they became reality, what would be different than it is right now? Are we resolved to do good stuff in the world? Do we have all these things we want to accomplish? We just need somebody praying for us that they might be unleashed and become real. Are we praying for that? Do we resolve that? Do we have that sort of faith? Number three, he prays that the name of Jesus may be glorified in them. That's the goal, is that God be glorified in us. And if we embrace this calling, this idea that God is inviting you and me as as broken as we are and as mistaken as we've been and as guilty as we've been, he's inviting us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Then when we embrace that, we say, I just want whatever it is that I'm able to do, whatever good I'm able to accomplish, I just want it to bring glory to you. I want others to see how good you are by watching what you're doing in my life. Do these things reflect our prayer life? And and do we see at the end there of verse 12, he says, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. That's where we get the word charity. It's charity. You're only saved by God's charity. You only had the opportunity to hear about God by his charity. You only wear his name because of his charity, because of his grace. You didn't deserve it. You don't earn it. You you could only be worthy of his calling by his grace. And if he deems it necessary for you to suffer for his namesake, then that itself will be an act of grace. See, because if we really embrace the fact that we're called to a life that's bigger than us, that's bigger than anything anybody can see or hear or experience with their five senses, it's bigger than all of that. If we embrace that reality, then we realize that if we are called to suffer for his name, then it's God in his grace that's allowing us the honor to suffer for him, to sacrifice for him. To give up something for, it's not an inconvenience, it's an honor to give time to him or money to him or suffering for him. So here's my prayer. Here's my challenge for us this week. Do we have the courage to pray this this week? Lord, do what you must. 
to make us worthy of your calling. If you need to introduce me to somebody I don't know, do what you must to make me worthy of your calling. If you need to lead me through a certain time in my life, do what you must to make me worthy of your calling. If you need to break me or mold me or shape me, do what you must to make me worthy of your calling. If there's something in my life that's keeping me from you, take it away that I might be worthy of your calling. Do you know, I've heard Christians say sometimes, well, you got to be careful what you pray for, because if you pray for patience, God may take you through some hard stuff. You don't have to be careful what you pray for. Do you know who you're praying to? He's a good God who loves you. You don't have to be careful what you pray for. If you pray for patience and he leads you through a hard time, then thank God that you had the courage to pray for patience. Don't repent of it. You have patience now. If your goal is that God be glorified in you, if your goal is that you're worthy of his kingdom, if your goal is that you are the person he wants you to be, then we ought to have the courage to pray. Do what you must to make me into that person. Take away whatever you need to take away. Add whatever you need to add. Change whatever you need to change. Do what you must to make me worthy of your calling. And maybe there's somebody here this morning, and you've been thinking about it for a while, and you just haven't done it yet. You haven't accepted God's invitation to be part of what he's doing in the world. You say, well, I don't deserve it. (laughs) Join the club. That's what it's about. That's what this group is all about. None of us deserve it. All of us are unworthy. It's a gift, and Jesus wants to give it to you and make you a part of his people. So accept it by faith and walk with him. Be a part of what he's doing. Become a a royal priest to bless other people and bring glory to him. So if you haven't accepted the invitation, or maybe you just need prayers, our shepherds would love nothing more in the world than to pray with you after service, or right now, come forward as we stand and sing.